Go ahead and uh, go ahead and lead us. Join us for the first scripture in Genesis two five to seventeen. When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work in the ground, and mist was going up from the land was and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature, and the Lord planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he put the man whom had formed, and out the ground Lord made spring up every tree of pleasant to sight and good for food. The tree of life was midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed through Eden, water the garden, and there it Divided. divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Fism. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold, and the gold land is good. Bedellum. Bedellum and Onyx Stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one that flows through, flowed around the whole island of Crush, and the name of the third river is Tigris, which flows through Asaria, and the fourth river is the Euphorus River. The Lord God took man up and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commands the man, saying, You may not eat of every tree in the garden, but the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for surely in the day you eat on it, you surely die. This is the second scripture read, Genesis three seventeen to 24. In Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and you have eaten of the tree of which I command you, shall not eat. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return 
to the ground, for out of it you are taken, for you are dust, and dust shall you shall return. The man called wife named Eve, because she was not the mother of all living, and the Lord God made Adam, and for his wife garments of skin and clothes them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing God, good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his to work the ground from which he has taken, he drove out the man in the east of the garden of Eden. He placed the cherub and a flaming sword and turned every way to a guard to the tree of life. Good job, Miles. Have a seat. Okay. And our scripture reading today is Psalms 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The the Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As the Father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower in the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone. And its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you, his angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, oh, my soul. As many of you know, I actually grew up Southern Baptist. And here's the thing about the Southern Baptist Church. There's a few things that we dislike. One of these is hierarchy. Another is structure. And lastly of all, ritual. Uh, We Baptists, we prefer things spontaneous. Uh, We find that more authentic. We don't like planning as much. We want to take a more authentic approach to religion. So as a result, one thing Baptists do not do is follow a liturgical calendar. 
And so, uh, you know, the various seasons of the church are something that I've come to late in life. Uh, however, I've kind of developed this appreciation uh, for the rhythms and how they mirror uh, what's going on in the natural world. Uh, I've talked a lot about Advent, how Advent, you know, comes to us in darkness as the days uh, get shorter and the nights get longer, uh, but ends uh, with, the, with, with the reverse. Uh, you know, Easter comes uh, with renewal when the world awakens and becomes alive again. So if we go by the liturgical calendar, today is the Sunday before Ash Wednesday. And so for those of you who are like me, new to this, Ash Wednesday begins the season of Lent. And Lent takes us to Good Friday and ends with Resurrection Sunday. Lent begins in the cold of winter, but ends with renewal in spring. As such, Lent is a time for reflection on the hardships, on the suffering, the pain, the grief, the mortality of life, all the great problems that afflict us as humans. Uh, the 40 days of Lent are meant to uh, remind us of the suffering of Jesus as uh, you know, him and his mortal state as he prepared to confront Satan in the wilderness, winning a great victory over the dark forces of the world. And I think this is important to bring back uh, Lent uh, and particularly the ideas associated with them because I find that uh, for the most part, the evangelical church has chosen to hold issues of suffering and mortality at arm's length. Uh, they instead, uh, a lot of times churches want to present themselves as the happiest place on earth, uh, Disney World without the rides. Uh, yet issues of pain and suffering and life and death were once areas that the church was good at. These were areas where the church were the professionals. Now more than ever, I think that the need for the church to address these difficult but important topics of the human experience. So my hope is to use Lent to move us back toward this focus because it's an area I think that we desperately need the church to focus in this world. And so my plan is to introduce a series with uh, today's sermon on Ash Wednesday where we contemplate our humanity and our mortality. The famous line of Ash Wednesday is, of course, remember you are dust and to dust you will return. And then I want to uh, start a series I'm going to call Lament for Lent, in which I will work through the Book of Lamentations. So lots of excitement to look forward to. Yeah, chipper. <laughs> yeah. So that's our plan. Uh, but for now, uh, let us uh, start by focusing on some of the passages today. Uh, we're going to look at Genesis 2, which details the origin of humanity. And see what scripture wants us to understand about ourselves in relation to who we are. Our relationship to creation and our relationship with God, our creator. In other words, what does it mean to be human? Who are we? And what are we here for? Our passage begins by setting up a problem for which humanity as presented as the solution. Um, if you look in chapter 2, verse 5 says that there were no bushes or small plants in the field because there was not yet rain. And we are told that the reason for this lack of rain is because there was no one to work the land. I'm not sure scientifically how that works out with the water cycle or something like that, but that's what we're told. Uh, to understand why this is the case and what is going on, let's think back a little bit to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 famously begins with the earth described as void and without form. 
And so it is in response to this state of chaos and barrenness that God brings order to life. He solves this problem of disorder and emptiness by dividing the world into set realms, by separating the land from the sea, the earth from the sky. He also establishes day and night and the seasons, and then he fills his creation with all manner of life, culminating in the creation of humanity. That's the story of Genesis 1. God imposing order where there was no order and filling what has been empty. And so Genesis 2 kind of parallels that in a way. It tells us that humanity is needed in order to bring order and life to the garden that God intended to plant in Eden. And so what this does is it suggests a parallel between humanity and God. Humanity is meant to function in a similar way to God in bringing about order and life to the land. Now, certainly God doesn't need humanity to do this in order to accomplish this task, but God has chosen to give this task to humanity. God has delegated this task to humanity. It's not clear why he does this, but the point is that humanity has been assigned a role, and thus we have a job, a vocation in relation to creation. And that means we have a purpose, and that purpose is no less than the imitation of God himself. So humanity has been assigned a lofty role in God's creation. That's part of what we started with our call to worship today in Psalms 8. What is man that you are considerate of him? Uh, We have a role, we have a purpose. And what naturally follows from that role is privilege, but also responsibility. So that's the first point I want to make. Now, The next key detail we learn from this passage in chapter 2 is that the Lord God forms humanity from the dust of the ground. Now, when we read this, we typically take that as an indication of humanity's lowly origin. We are but dust. And I don't think that's entirely wrong. However, I want to be a little more complete here. I want to push back on that notion a little bit. It's certainly true that humanity's origins are not that of God. We're uh, limited and finite. That's true. Uh, We are a lesser being. We are created less than God. And no doubt that is partly what is being communicated here by this idea that we are formed from dust. But let's dig a little deeper. I I actually did not intend that pun. I just realized that just now. So that was all Freudian, I guess. And so if we're going to dig a little bit deeper here, you know what that means. It's that time at Resurrection Church for a word study. Yeah, there will be some agriculture too. So we get both. It's like a double whammy, Resurrection Church double whammy here. So the Hebrew word for dust is afar. And it certainly can include ideas that we might consider negative. For example, afar is used for things like rubbish, ashes, dirt. Uh, But it it also includes some other ideas. Uh, It means uh, uh, particularly fine particles. And so perhaps the idea is to convey that, that humanity is formed from the basic building blocks of creation, you know, something elemental. Uh, you know, maybe the idea is, is if the Hebrews had our current scientific understanding is that we are, or is to think of dust as something like atoms. Yet afar can also mean not just dirt, but soil. Now, there's a difference. And believe me, I know this difference because in eighth grade, I had an earth science teacher named Mrs. Schultz. Let's hear it for earth science. Yay. Did anybody take earth science? Is that still a thing? 
Yeah, kind of, sort of. Yeah, Earth science. Yeah. So Mrs. Schultz was my eighth grade um, Earth science teacher, and if there was one thing she had a pet peeve about, it was confusing dirt and soil because those are two very different things. Dirt is just something out of place. Okay. That's all dirt is. Soil, though. Soil is awesome. That's what you grow things in. Soil is something useful. It provides plants with nutrients. Uh, It's incredibly important. And I can imagine that if you are an ancient agriculturally based society, you know, this this idea about soil uh, and how soil was viewed is probably a little bit more magical than we might view it. Uh, You know, we who are so disconnected from the land. And so I think it's here that, uh, you know, the great poet and farmer, Wendell Berry. Who's a Wendell Berry? Anybody a Wendell Berry fan? Yeah, Wendell Berry is awesome. If you haven't read the poetry of Wendell Berry, talk to me because he's from Kentucky. Um, anyway, he's a great guy. Um, but he's really helpful in recapturing some of the wonder and mystery of the soil. And here's a quote from a work of his called The Unsettling of America, Culture and Agriculture. I like this quote. The soil is the great connector of lives, the source and destination of it all. It is the healer and restorer and resurrector by which disease passes into health, age into youth, death into life. Without proper care for it, we can have no community because without proper care for it, we can have no life. And I think that quote kind of gets some of that mass, that, that magicalness, some of that mystery that I think is actually implied by saying that we come from, uh, from dust. So I don't think that humanity's origin from the soil is only a statement of humility the way we moderns usually think about it. Now, even more so, there's another translation of afar that I think that makes this point even better. So afar can be used for a particular type of soil, and those of us who grew up in the South are all too familiar with it. What kind of soil do we have in the South? Clay. Clay. That's right. We have clay. Yes. And it may be that clay moves us even, thinking of afar as clay, moves us even closer to what Genesis have in mind, because the word that the uh, verse 7 uses for how we are made is form. It's a specific Hebrew word, yatsar. And the verb yatsar is used in other places to describe what a potter does with clay. Again, let's think about uh, being an ancient uh, society. Pottery was like super important. It was like plastic is to us. Uh, You know, humanity is formed. Clay would have underscored that they have utility, that they are purposeful. So, I don't think that the point of this verse is that humanity sucks because we're made of nothing but dirt. Instead, I think this is communicating to us this idea of vocation and purpose. Thinking of soil as something that's, that's life-giving, that's productive, that has nutrients, that, uh, that, that can be used to make things. Um, now, I do think that there is an aspect here also uh, that humanity is material and that it's subject to limitations of the material world. I mean, you know, pottery breaks. You know, humanity has a finite origin. Uh, It it must be formed uh, by forces outside of itself. You know, clay pots don't just happen. Uh, It can be broken. And note, 
that all of these things that are, are not, you know, products of the fall. You know, we think that everything wrong with humanity is a product of the fall. Uh, rather, you know, all of this is things that the way we were created. It's the way God uh, put us into this world. Uh, they're not deficiencies or punishments necessarily, but part of our personhood about who we are in relation to God, our creator. And this is underscored by the fact that humanity has no life until it is given to us by the very breath of God. It is God who must move, who must animate the material world for us to be fully alive. In other words, it is only by the generosity of God that humanity can have being. And this fact means that humanity is completely and totally dependent upon God. To be a living creature is to have received a great gift from the Creator. So I think there's multiple meanings here. You know, this is layers. Again, we often talk about, uh, you know, some of the great symbols of the faith, like baptism and the Lord's Supper. You know, they don't mean just one thing. There's layers here. There's, there's, there's different aspects. So part of it is, yes, we are finite. Our lives are given to us. We're dependent upon God. But that, that's a gift. It's a great generosity. But not only is it a gift... But it's also about us receiving uh, not only the gift of life, but the gift of land and abundance. Notice how uh, chapter 2 describes uh, the setting that the created uh, humanity has been placed in. Uh, He is lovingly placed in the midst of a garden. And that garden is teeming with not just a few trees, not just a lot of trees, but every tree and every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. There is both the abundance in necessity, but also abundance in sensory delight that's uh, given to us in this description of Eden. The trees are, are good for food and they're pleasant to the sight. Precious stones such as gold and onyx are everywhere. Even uh, bdellium, which I looked up, turns out that's perfume. Okay, so bedelium, perfume. So humanity, the point here is that humanity finds itself in the midst of a land of almost overwhelming sensory pleasures of taste, uh, sight, and smell. And they're all provided to humanity as a gift from God. Yet, this amazing display of generosity is given to humanity along with responsibility. And it's here that we see that humanity has a purpose, and their purpose is to work and keep the land. And that the idea here, I think, with these parallels that we've established between God and humanity, is that humanity is supposed to take this land that's been given to them out of God's generosity and to manage their allotted creation as God would manage it. They are to fill the land with life, to organize, to order creation, to ensure this gift of abundance is passed on. In future passages in the Bible, the land will be described as an inheritance, an inheritance that is meant to continue the values and the will of its originator for the future and not to be squandered. And that leads to the next point. Humanity is a consequence of being constituted from the dust of the earth is connected to the earth in a very intimate way. We are not separate from the earth. We are part of this earth. We are part of creation. Humanity belongs to the earth. 
It's one with the earth. And this intimate connection should direct us and guide us to our responsibility of working and keeping the garden in the same way that our responsibility for our children is strengthened by the bond we share as connected to them by the family. But this passage closes on this note of limitation. Humanity, despite all these amazing gifts, all these privileges, all these resources and responsibility, are not to think of themselves as autonomous. Their judgment is not the final judgment. Knowledge of good and evil, which elsewhere in the Old Testament seems to be exercising judgment, is something that is restricted. It belongs to God alone. A hint of the reason for this occurs at the end of chapter 3 when God says as a result of eating the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, humanity has become like God, knowing good and evil. It seems a concern for humanity's aspiration of divinity is the principal reason for this prohibition. Adam and Eve are attempt to transcend their creaturely status. And that was the danger of their action in listening to the serpent and eating from this forbidden tree. Humanity is, after all, dust, limited by its materiality, limited by its uh, perspective, limited by its ability. As uh, Ecclesiastes puts it, they cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so God's response to Adam and Eve's failure in chapter 3, often referred to as the curses or punishments, can be viewed not not so much as punishments, but almost a, a reinforcement, a reaffirmation of this creaturely status of humanity. It seems God's design in his response to Adam and Eve's transgression is to reinforce their origin from dust by intensifying some of the points we made earlier. Humanity must be reminded of the precariousness of their lives and their utter dependence upon the God who breathes life into the dust. From now on, their ability to derive pleasure and even sustenance to the land will be characterized by struggle. Their ability to create life in which to fill the earth will be characterized by pain. Life itself will end in dust as a reminder to everyone of their material and non-divine origin. The result is that humanity will no longer aspire so easily to divinity as a result of these decrees, having a constant reminder that they are dust. Of course, we know that humanity often tries nonetheless. Yet, Genesis 3 ends with a reaffirmation of humanity. Life continues through Eve. She is the mother of all living. The human project God created them for with its purpose and responsibility continues. Our charge is still to work and keep the creation. That is what it means to be human. However, Genesis 3 reminds us that we do so within the limits and boundaries of our humanity. We are part of creation and should perform the duties and vocation not with arrogance, but with an attitude of respect for our limitation and ignorance. We must continue to be in awe and in obedience to a world that is bigger than us and beyond our comprehension. Our dustly origins means life is a mystery to be contemplated and not so much a problem to be solved. And so having reflected on what our origin for dust means for us as humans, I want to shift gears a little bit and look at this 
this, uh, the, what our origins from dust means to God. What does God see when he sees us, his beings formed for dust? And to do that, I want to look at Psalms 103, the sermon text from the day. So if you look at Psalms 103, the psalm begins in verse 2 by asking us to reflect on the many benefits humanity receives from God. All the things that we're trying to be communicate with the description of Eden in chapter 2. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And what follows is a list of these benefits. Most of these items in these lists are quotations from other parts of the Bible, from Exodus and Isaiah. And among the benefits humanity receives from God is forgiveness of sins, of healing of illness. Humanity is crowned with goodness and given that which satisfies. The abundance of the garden with its multitude of trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food is very much what is in view here. God's desire to establish justice in his creation, along with his amazing constant love, is described in almost over-the-top language here. God's love is high as heaven and above, is the, as high as the heavens are above the earth. Forgiveness and mercy are attributes that the psalmist returns to repeatedly through the first part of the psalm. In verse 3, God forgives iniquities. In verse 8, God is described as merciful. Verse 9 says that God's anger is fleeting. And verse 10 says that when God sees us, he doesn't see our sin. He doesn't repay us according to our iniquities. Instead, in verse 12, God removes them as far as the east is from the west. The picture here is of a God who is like a parent who indulges his children rather than a distant deity who is waiting to smite us when we stray from some kind of rule. Now, here's what I think. So that's the picture of who God is. But here's what I think is just awesome about this point. This is the most amazing part. It's why I chose it for the sermon text this week. You see, when we think about all these amazing attributes of God and his relationship with humanity, you know, described in this awe-inspiring detail, we get that. But then we get to verse 14. And look at what verse 14 says. Uh, For he knows our frame. Okay? Well, that doesn't mean a whole lot to me, but let me tell you something. He knows our frame. The word frame there is actually that Hebrew word yatsor that was used in Genesis 2 for form. In other words, what what 14 is trying to say here is he knows how we are formed. He knows that we are formed from dust. He remembers that we are dust. Okay? Um, Again, that's that word afar from Genesis 2 that we talked about. Uh, What this psalmist is doing is looking back to Genesis 2, and he's, he's using that language. In other words, all these great attributes about God, his compassion, his love for humanity, is all based on God's remembrance of humanity's origins. Our dustly origin does not inspire revulsion from God. Our creaturely inferiority doesn't result in judgment for God, from God. Instead, what our origin does inspires gracious loyalty 
like a father to his son. Human transgression and sin are removed because God understands who we are. He knows we are not divine. We are mortal. We die. And verse 15 and 16 reflect on this by noting that we are like grass or like a flower whose existence is precarious and fleeting. Now, we might think that that fact, that we are like flower or grass, would make us, uh, God find us insignificant. What value could something so temporary possibly have to an infinite and all-powerful God? What value do we place on grass or flowers? And that's what's absolutely remarkable here. Because according to this psalm, it is this transience, this lowliness, this temporarilessness, this everything, like all of this, that inspires the very opposite in God. In fact, Psalms, uh, this psalm has God responding to our limitations with two incredible Hebrew words. I know you've heard these words before because we talk about them a lot. Hesed and Zadek. Now, if you've been around Resurrection Church, uh, you, you've heard uh, uh, Hesed a lot. Uh, these, were, these were just two great virtues that were like prized by the Israelites. And, and, and it was what was often used to describe why Yahweh was so great. Remember, there were lots of gods in the world at this time. What the Israelites said is that our God, Yahweh, is so great because he exhibits Hesed and Zadik. So what, is those, what do those mean? Well, Zadik is easy. It means something like goodness or justice or righteousness, exactly the kind of thing we would think of when we hear righteousness, or I mean justice, okay? Hesed is a lot harder because we don't really have a good translation for it. But a, a, a good idea to think of it is like passionate loyalty. You know, this like love that, that no matter what, um, it comes through. It's a love that conquers all. And the important part here is that the two greatest and most prized characteristic of God are a result of human fragility. That's what Psalms 103 is trying to tell us. That's why he writes this psalm, because he wants us to get that point across. In other words, God sees beyond our fleeting lives and beyond the futility of loving something that is fragile and temporary and instead admires and responds to the beauty he finds in his creation. And it is a love that's beyond simple explanation. And it's why it can only find ultimate expression in the poetry of a psalm. It's not rational. You can't make a statement about this. There's no syllogism that can contain this. The only way we can get across this amazing concept of who God is and why he loves us is in a poem. Like a poet God uncovers and responds to beauty that could easily be overlooked. We are to remember we are dust, but God also remembers and he responds with forgiveness, healing, redemption, crowning, satisfying, renewing, mercy, graciousness, compassion, hesed, and zodic. That's all the words in the poem there. What an insight that this psalmist has given it to us into the mind of God and what makes his relationship with humanity truly extraordinary. So, what does it mean to remember that we are dust? Well, a lot of things. 
We need to remember what it means to be human, both in our limitations and our mission. Ash Wednesday forces us to confront the mortality that we often would like to ignore. We must remember that our life is a gift and therefore to not repeat the mistake of Adam is the forgetfulness of who we are that leads to us imagining that we are free to do what we want with the result being greed, selfishness, brutality. To imagine that no one gives us anything and that gives us license to do what we want. We must also remember that we are connected to all things and to each other. We are not alone. We are part of a mystery that is bigger and greater than us. And that should inspire us to the duty we have to care for the world and for each other. Our mission is not to exploit the earth or to oppress or ignore the sufferings of humanity. We are given the, the world as an image of God. And so we should look to God's hesed and God's zadek and implement an order of love and justice. Life is a blessing. It's sustained by blessing and is meant to return blessing. So a reflection of our dusty origins let us know who we are, what we are here for, the great questions of, of, of humanity. And that's the purpose of Ash Wednesday. We are dust, and to dust we will return. But this fact leads God to amazing acts of love. And as we continue the story, we will find that God will free us from the enslavement of sin that begins in Genesis, and even death itself will be conquered. That's a few weeks off, though. But for right now, his kingdom of Zadok, will, of Hesed and Zadok, will rule over all. And it's that hope, that promise that we look forward to. And like the psalmist, we can conclude by saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul.